This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We'll uh, close the session with what's new and what's hot, and we'll have a dynamic duo of Sandy Fang and uh, Dr. Chandran. All right. Um, I think I'm going to keep it fairly easy and light for you. We're going to talk about donor and recipient characteristics. I'm going to evoke and ask you guys to perhaps look at my trousers. Um, my trousers, just for a second, a little diversion, um, is the Italian beach. And all these little things are uh, umbrellas and people laying on the beach, and there's sand. So I think we all have to evoke that and hope we get to those drinks uh, very quickly. So what's new and what's hot? Am I, I think this looks reasonable. Okay. So this is just a very sobering way to say that we need to really be aggressive to do transplants. Um, Basically, at UCSF, the transplant rate is less than the mortality rate. So your patients are more likely to die than to get a transplant. So that means that anything that looks like a kidney, that smells like a kidney, that might reasonably work like a kidney, is probably one that needs to be seriously considered on an individual basis. Um, The flavor of kidney I'm going to talk to you about first is diabetic kidneys. And so Jess, Peter spent a lot of time on the kidney allocation system. And so a couple of things just to remind you, having diabetes in the donor jacks up your KDPI. Having diabetes as a recipient jacks up your estimated post-transplant survival in that you have low post-transplant survival. And so it's very important to remember that if you have high EPTS as a recipient, you have less access to good kidneys. So you're gonna be, you're not gonna be getting the Rolls Royce of kidneys. You're going to be choosing between Pintos and Malibus and you're gonna have to make those choices. Okay, historically, studies have reported no survival effect of diabetes, but these studies were basically crappy. So we're now needing to look at better studies because there's been a huge increase in the utilization of kidneys from diabetic donors in the, in, in the two decades shown. So here's the study. You don't need to know too much about this slide, except there are 9,000 transplants from a diabetic donor and 152,000 transplants from a non-diabetic donor. And the strategy for this study is to look at the diabetic kidneys that came out from the same donor that one went into a diabetic recipient and one went into a diabetic donor. So that's why there are four boxes for each type of transplant, and it's only one of them is white. So we're looking at 3,000 discordant transplants of diabetic kidneys and 42,000 discordant transplants of the non-diabetic kidneys to try to isolate the effect. And here are the results. What you can see is for uh, the half-life of the diabetic kidneys overall in the first bar is 9.1 years. If you have a uh, non-diabetic donor, the half-life is 9.24, but if the donor is diabetic, the overall half-life is 6.7. This, however, is modulated 
by whether the recipient uh, has diabetes or not. And what you can see is that the double negative pair has a half-life of 10.6 years. The double positive pair has a half-life of 5.7 years. And if you're either the diabetic donor, the non-diabetic recipient, or the other way around, you're basically the same. So the impact of donor diabetes is dependent on recipient diabetes, and exposure of the kidney, either in the donor or in the recipient, is sort of an additively bad situation. Um, and um, some data I did not show you is that younger recipients have particularly bad outcomes with diabetic kidneys. So we know that diabetic kidneys are not as good as non-diabetic kidneys, but do diabetic kidneys confer survival benefit? If so, for whom? And I've already hinted that it doesn't confer as much survival benefit for younger patients, and I'll show you that data. This is a complicated study, and the one thing that I want to highlight for you is that there are, uh, this looks at all-cause mortality from the point of listing all the way through to more and more weight listing or eventually to transplant. There were 8,000 recipients of diabetic donor kidneys. There were 300,000 people on the wait list, and there were 126,000 transplanted with non-diabetic kidneys. Because the reference group that we're going to be looking at is a combination of wait list and non-diabetic kidney transplants. So if we combine those two, you have 300,000 waitlisted people who are contributing a lot of weight, and you have 126,000 people who got non-diabetic kidneys. They are contributing to through their waiting time and also through their post-transplant survival. Okay, so it's just a little bit of a strange reference group. So here's the data. Compared to this reference group, which is people who got stuck on the wait list or people who waited and got transplanted with a non-diabetic kidney, if you get transplanted with a diabetic kidney, your overall hazard ratio of mortality is 0.91. So it's good to take a diabetic kidney, better than just staying on the wait list, uh, better than the reference group. It's particularly good if the KDPI of that diabetic kidney is less than 85%. It's pretty much a diabetic kidney with a low KDPI is actually better than a non-diabetic kidney with a high KDPI. Now, this doesn't mean it's any diabetic kidney. These are diabetic kidneys that got transplanted. So we're definitely biopsying these kidneys, and we're not, you know, we're trying to see that there are no terminal changes. We're looking at the proteinuria because there's usually multiple urinalyses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what this is telling you is diabetic kidneys are not an unreasonable resource to use in terms of expanding the donor pool. I'm going to skip this next part. And the final point to make about this is that we at UCSF and in Northern California, we really have to use these because these diabetic kidneys um, actually um, ben are do the best in waiting uh, time, long waiting time centers. So if you are a center, as we are, with the longest tertile of waiting time, a diabetic kidney is not as good as a non-diabetic kidney, but it's still a very worthwhile resource and will reduce your mortality.
So what about the increased risk donor kidney? I totally want to reinforce Peter Stock's plea um, at the end of his talk, and here's the data it'll take very quickly. If you decline an increased risk donor kidney, what happens to you? Five years later, 30, uh, 20% of you have died. 32% have gone on to a non-increased risk deceased donor kidney. A small percentage will have gone on to living donor kidneys. And then some people are still on the wait list. And then others are removed off the wait list. So I think you can see this death is pretty significant. These two groups still waiting, not transplanted, is pretty significant. Uh, but there are people who do get transplanted. Well, what are these transplants like? I will show you that shortly. In terms of cumulative mortality, if you start at the time of the offer of an increased risk donor kidney, and you compare the people who declined versus the people who accepted, you can see that the people who accepted the increased risk donor kidney have much lower mortality than the people who declined over the ensuing five years. If you look at the kidneys that people got transplanted with, here's the KDPI. You can see that the hump is low, around 20%. Whereas the people who took a later kidney that was non-IRD, you can see the range of the KDPI, and the non-IRDs accepted later had a KDPI of 50%. So you can see that people generally turned down higher quality kidneys and eventually got transplanted with lower quality kidneys. And then when does the survival benefit of increased risk donor kidneys accrue? It starts accruing at one to six months. If you have surgery, you're going to have a higher risk of death than if you just go to dialysis three times a week. However, starting as early as one to six months after that transplant, you have a 0.67 uh, risk hazard ratio of death. And so again, Accepting that increased risk donor kidney, if it is offered to you, whenever it is, is absolutely key. A few slides on obesity, and then I'm done. We did the donor. Now we're doing the recipient. We all know obesity is a barrier to transplantation. Technically, it's not good. Um, it has inferior outcomes. Uh, but we also know from data that obese patients derive survival benefit. It's just that they don't, they may not derive as much survival benefit as more straightforward patients. So the issue is bariatric surgery. There are two studies, very small, but these are the first that have been published that actually not only look at getting people to transplant, but what happens post-transplant. So, um, uh, you know, Andy Posselt and others published four or five years ago trying to get people to transplant liver or kidney, demonstrating that it was safe and possible to do the surgery. But now there's some trickle of data about what happens after transplant. So both of these uh, uh, papers talk about people who've gotten bariatric surgery. There's two flavors, the sleeve gastrectomy versus the Rouen-White gastric bypass. Uh, 20 came to kidney transplantation. I want to call you to see that it took about a year and a half after bariatric surgery 
to get the kidney transplant. So this speaks to the fact that, you know, the timing, you don't want to wait until the person is at the top of the list to get the bariatric surgery. In this other series, it took them 11 months to waitlist the patient, and then another 33, a total of 33 months, an additional 22 months to transplant. So this really argues for trying to get the bariatric surgery done early, so early in the setting of CKD or ESRD, so that if and when the person needs a transplant, they can get it. There were two different controls. The first group basically matched for the BMI at the time of transplant. Whereas the second group for their study used controls where these were moderately, you know, to morbidly obese patients. Um, so that's the difference. First of all, the laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy had remarkably low morbidity. You can see no complications, no remissions, no mortality. Um, one thing I should point out is that the LSG was performed by one surgeon that was trained both in transplant and minimally invasive surgery. So um, that may have uh, an impact on the quality of the outcomes. The weight loss was acceptable, certainly enough to get people transplanted, but the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, which is a more complex procedure, the sleeve gastrectomy, you just basically zip down the stomach. The Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, you create this little pouch and you bring a Roux limb up to drain this little pouch of the stomach. There were quite a few adverse events, but they had achieved better weight loss. The cohorts uh, for the comparators, there's not a whole lot that's surprising, uh, but I do want to point out that the Ruan-Y gastric bypass, the patients were generally younger in the 40s, whereas the laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy was done very safely, as you saw, in patients into their 50s. In terms of outcomes of the laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomy, there were pretty comparable outcomes to patients that were matched for BMI. So these people had BMIs of 32 who had sleeve gastrectomies. They were compared to other patients with BMI of 32 naturally without sleeve gastrectomy. The only differences was fewer readmissions due to renal dysfunction and lower rates of delay graft function. You can see 5% in the sleeve group, 25% in the non-sleeve group. But most importantly, what about the metabolic outcomes? These are shown here. One line has three data points because it's pre-sleeve, pre-kidney, post-kidney. The control group is at the time of kidney and post-kidney. You can see that the sleeve people had a significant improvement in their hypertension that actually continued and persisted post-kidney transplant. Whereas there was no significant change uh, difference in diabetes, although there was improvement in the people with the sleeve, it was not different than the control. There was no statistically significant difference in new onset diabetes post-transplant, but nobody with the sleeve gastrectomy developed NODAT. The numbers were too small for any statistical significance. Finally, what happened with the Ruan-Y bypass group, the more aggressive operation, the greater weight loss? There were metabolic changes after the Ruan-Y, but prior to the kidney. They did not tell us really uh, in detail what happened with the metabolic parameters post-kidney transplant. And so there was clearly some uh, significant improvement and comparable to the sleep 
This is stuff you know, you've all seen it in your patients who've gotten uh, the uh, um, bypass. Um, however, when you look at post-transplant outcomes, there are really uh, two groups. There's sort of the kidney-related things. There were no differences compared to a morbidly obese group, and there were no significant differences in terms of uh, other outcomes, again, to a more obese group. So it resulted in improved metabolic changes leading up to kidney transplant. It enabled them to get a kidney transplant, but they were not able to identify any difference with a low BMI group post-bariatric surgery compared to a more obese group in terms of transplant outcomes. Final slide is rejection rates. This was the only difference that they saw was that actually, and interestingly, the Rouen-White gastric bypass, again, a more severe uh, uh, bariatric surgery operation with a malabsorption component, whereas the sleeve is just a restrictive uh, approach, the Rouen-White gastric bypass had increased rejection rates, as you can see. They looked at TAC levels, and what they found was the TAC levels between the two groups were comparable at one in six months. But the Rouen-White gastric bypass people actually needed higher doses of TAC to achieve those levels. When they looked at baseline demographics, sensitization, and you know, all that stuff, they couldn't explain the difference in rejection. The only factor that corresponded or associated with rejection was having the bypass. But then they did another analysis where they looked at, did the patients have a TAC level that was less than four within three weeks of the diagnosis of rejection? And the answer is that the people who had a low TAC level proximal to the diagnosis of rejection, of course, had a lot more rejection. If you had good TAC levels throughout, you didn't have much rejection. And so I think what they're trying to uh, uh, emphasize is potentially if you have a restrictive and a malabsorptive uh, approach to bariatric surgery, we on the transplant side are going to have to be more careful about immunosuppression dosing to keep the TAC levels robust because that may allow, you know, these absorption issues may complicate and allow them to slip into rejection. So leaving you on this immunologic note, Sindhu's going to finish up, and I think she's going to talk much more about immunology and pathology. Hello, everyone. Uh, since I know that I'm the only person standing between you and drinks, I wish I had some fancy pants like <laughs> Sandy's, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but not uh, too much. Okay, so moving on. So I think Flavio already, Dr. Vincenti already told you a little bit about this study, and I think you may recall the honeymoon drug that he talked about. So I'm going to be very brief in my presentation of this paper, which was one of the very important papers that was published last year. So as you know, and as you have heard, preformed HLA antibodies are a barrier to kidney transplant, and despite the availability of things like the National Kidney Registry and you know different sorts of uh, desensitization regimens, these patients still wait a long, long time to be transplanted. The group at Cedar sinai led by Stanley Jordan, have always been very interested in trying new approaches for these patients. And as you know, they tried this medication uh, or a uh, product, IgG endopeptidase, which is an IgG-degrading enzyme derived from strep. 
and cleaves intact IgG into products that cannot fix complement and therefore cannot uh, mediate complement-dependent cytotoxicity or antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. So basically, the study was composed of two studies, two cohorts, which were in Sweden and the United States. The eligibility criteria consisted of adult patients who had a pretty high PRA, median PRA of 95%, and had preformed DSA against their donor. The, uh, as you can see, there were slight differences in the immunosuppressive regimen between those in Sweden and in the United States. In Sweden, all they did was give them induction with horse antithymocyte globulin and give them the drug IDIS, followed by transplantation, following which they were maintained on TAC, MMF, and steroids. In the United States cohort at Cedars-Sinai, you can see that these patients actually received, uh, 12 out of these 14 patients actually received desensitization with IVIG and rituximab prior to the transplant, then received induction with CAMPATH, followed by maintenance on TAC, MMF, and steroids. But again, they also received IVIG and rituximab following the transplant. So in both cohorts, IDs was administered on day four, about four to six hours pre-transplant with slightly different doses. So I think this uh, just shows you that basically these patients were highly sensitized. Almost all of them got kidneys from deceased donors. The cold time was slightly higher in the U.S. cohort, and uh, understandably they had higher rates of DGF in the U.S. cohort as well. They had an average of about two and a half DSAs to their donors and pretty high levels of MFI, as you can see here. So this uh, box plot on the left side actually shows the total serum IgG levels before treatment as well as following treatment. So this is imi all immunoglobulin, including immunoglobulin against uh, HLA antibodies, against uh, measles, against varicella, et cetera, et cetera. And as you can see, starting one hour or even starting 30 minutes after treatment, and by four to six hours, you can see that there is barely any IgG that is detectable in the serum. But as soon as three to seven days after the transplant, you can see that the IgG starts to come back, and by day 28 or so, it is comparable to pre-treatment levels. Similarly, the HLA antibody levels, which are part of the IgG, also go down. Here, this actually shows a single patient who had antibodies to 97 HLA antigens. So you can imagine the PRA would be 97%. And this shows, the red lines show the levels of these antibodies before treatment with IDIS, and the blue bars show the level of antibodies one hour after treatment with IDIS. And as you can see, that these antibodies are virtually gone about one hour after treatment with IDIS. And this one shows C1Q binding HLA antibody levels, which have been particularly associated with complement binding and um, humoral rejection. And both of these antibody levels, as you can see, are abrogated one hour after treatment with IDIS. So the interesting thing, I think, comes here when you look at these uh, the DSA levels before and after transplant. And as you can see, that the donor-specific antibody levels in both the Swedish and the U.S. cohorts come down after treatment with IDIS. And then by one week or so, you see a rebound increase in the DSA levels. This rebound, however, was seen more particularly in the Swedish cohort as compared to the United States cohort. And that could be because of the difference in the immunosuppressive regimens where they received treatment with IVIG and rituximab that may have had a more long-term effect on antibodies in the U.S. cohort. And this, again, is a box plot which is showing the same thing, the median highest level of donor-specific antibodies. This is in the Swedish cohort, and this is in the United States cohort. And as you can see, the rebound is not as striking in the U.S. cohort as in the Swedish cohort. So... How, did it work? Yes. 24 out of 25 patients were transplanted. So this drug was definitely successful at getting these patients to transplant. However, as Dr. Vincenti pointed out, there was a high incidence of acute rejection. 10 out of 24 patients had acute 
antibody rejection at two weeks to four months post-transplant. And uh, also there were two cases of cellular rejection in the U.S. cohort. There were some adverse events associated with this medication, although not particularly uh, impressive, given that these were patients who you know, were highly sensitized, getting desensitizing regimens, as well as uh, lymphocyte-depleting induction. So 13 infectious complications, but no cases of BKCMV, EBV, one case of parvovirus, and one case of persistent myalgia post-infusion in the Swedish cohort. So not terribly bad in terms of risks and side effects. The creatinine graph has already been shown by Flavio. One patient had particularly prolonged DGF in the uh, U.S. cohort, and there was one case of graft loss as well in the U.S. cohort due to hyperacute rejection. So to summarize, this is uh, clearly a very interesting and novel therapy for antibodies, which allowed successful transplantation in 24 out of 25 very highly sensitized patients and could potentially be useful in post-transplant acute AMR and antibody-mediated glomerulonephritides, for instance, those caused by anti-GBM antibody or something where you would traditionally use plasmapheresis. This could be a therapy to consider. However, it was associated with a high rate of antibody-mediated rejection, so the study does suffer from some limitations. Long-term results still need to be seen, particularly given the rebound of antibodies seen in these patients. And it is unclear if IDIS can be redosed since it is highly immunogenic and people form antibodies to this antibody after they have been dosed. So it may not have, it may be a once-only drug. Not true for honeymoons. You can have more than one. Okay. So moving on to chronic AMR. So what happens when these patients eventually develop chronic AMR? So, as you know, it is an important cause of late graft loss, and we don't have currently any approved therapies. And lots, this condition, I think, would be more appropriately called the graveyard of uh, drugs in transplantation, given how many drugs have been tried and failed in this condition. One of the promising ones a few years ago was Bortezomib, but a randomized trial done in a European cohort last year basically showed that it doesn't really work, did not reduce DSAs, did not improve graft function, did not protect from graft loss. So another interesting study that came from Stanley Jordan's group was use of tocilizumab, which is IL-6 blockade, for the treatment of chronic antibody-mediated rejection. So they had previously used tocilizumab, which uh, has been approved in the United States for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. They had used it off-label for a cohort in whom they were trying to do desensitization and had successfully transplanted several of those cohorts, uh, several members of that cohort, and had a pretty low risk of acute AMR in the first six months. In this study, they plan to use it to treat people who had uh, biopsy showing chronic antibody-mediated rejection and had a positive DSA, who had already been on tacrolimus, celsept, and prednisone, received IVIG rituximab with or without plasmapheresis, was continued to have failure of standard of care, which was defined as having a persistently elevated serum creatinine along with the continued positivity of DSA in circulation. So it was a single-center open-label study. There was no control group. 36 patients were enrolled. The study intervention was giving tocilizumab monthly for 6 to 25 months, and during this time they had renal function that was monitored, and a repeat biopsy was done in about nine patients at the end of one year. So the patient characteristics, I think, again, shows you, uh, I think, what is typical for a CDERS patient. Half of them were repeat transplants, half of them deceased donor, mean HLA mismatches of four, and, you know, about six to seven years from transplant. So as you can see, these are the index biopsies, the BAMF scores for glomerulitis, capillaritis, both of which are indicators of antibody-mediated inflammation were high, about one and a half or so, and they also had, you know, significant chronic antibody rejection as measured by uh, transplant glomerulopathy. 
So when you look at the kidney biopsy scores pre and post for patients who had the one year biopsy so 9 out of the 36 patients there was significant reduction in the glomerulitis and the ptc scores there was significant reduction in the amount of c4d uh, staining in the graft the transplant glomerulopathy score remained about the same but you wouldn't really expect the amount of scarring in the kidney to necessarily change and the fact that it remained about the same is probably the best we can hope for these kind of therapies the in this cohort of about 36 patients 32 were adults and 4 were children this plot shows the uh, gfr from 0 to 36 months of only the adult patients and shows that the gfr tended to be fairly stable just as a reference people with chronic antibody mediated rejection who are you know in this category with this amount of inflammation and this amount of dsas would typically have a median graft survival of about 50% at 2 years so the fact that they had relatively stable graft function not all of them there were four cases of graft loss but in the majority of patients the fact that the graft function remained relatively stable over 36 months is promising and they also showed that there was a reduction in the mean immunodominant dsa level over the same period of time To so to summarize, to sulizumab is another novel therapy that we have now in our box for chronic AMR, which potentially can reduce DSA and inflammation and stabilize graft function. In addition, as Dr. Vincenti pointed out, it has effect. It's a pleiotropic cytokine that has effects on uh, IL-6 is a pleiotropic cytokine that has effects on T cells as well, and is actually involved in the switch. where a naive t cell decides whether it wants to become an effector th17 cell or become a treg cell so that blockade of il6 would actually tend to preferentially direct the naive t cell towards the treg pathway and therefore it has a potential application for tolerance induction as well as part of de novo transplant uh, immunosuppression regimens the limitations are that there is a risk of infectious complications in the study five patients got cmv two got bk and then about seven patients got bacterial infections again not surprising given that these patients were receiving intense immunosuppression before they even received tocilizumab but the primary limitation of the study is that it is an uncontrolled study as we have seen we've seen promising agents come in the past such as bortezomib carfilzomib and so on and you know fail when tested in randomized controlled studies but this drug appears to be a promising alternative and hopefully uh, you know we will hope for a different outcome in controlled studies So talking about chronic AMR not all of these are highly sensitized patients chronic AMR also tends to develop in patients who have were unsensitized at the time of transplant so how do people develop de novo DSA and in the past there have been lots of studies which we are all familiar with showing that non adherence is the primary risk factor for the development of de novo DSA however what happens when patients are adherent like we have adherent people who you know take tacrolimus as prescribed is it then uh, you know is it uh, then possible that these people don't develop dsa well this study decided to answer the question because the primary medication that we use for transplantation tacrolimus as you know has a very narrow therapeutic window which requires multiple dose adjustments as well as monitoring of levels in the time post transplant this was a single center retrospective analysis of adult kidney or kidney pancreas transplants from 2007 to 2013 done at University of the Colorado they excluded those with the pre-transplant DSA so you're starting with a very low immunologic risk cohort they were all maintained on tacrolimus mmf and prednisone underwent DSA screening at 1 6 and 12 months per protocol 
And what this study did was look at tacrolimus levels in a different way. So they looked at the mean tacrolimus concentrations at different time points within the first year, but they also looked at something called the time in the therapeutic range using an equation called the Rosendahl or Rainier interpolation method. This has been used primarily in studies involving warfarin, where you want to look at what percentage of time does this person spend with their INR being inside the therapeutic range rather than outside the therapeutic range. So, and typically in the studies of warfarin, they have used a cutoff of about 60 or 75 percent, suggesting that if you, you know, poorer outcomes uh, have been associated if less than 75 percent of your time is spent in the therapeutic range. So, what they found was that on, on this plot here, they look at the odds ratio of forming a de novo DSA on the y-axis, and on the x-axis, they have different increments of mean tacrolimus concentrations within the first year, or by six months here. And they find that for every one-point drop in the tacrolimus mean concentration, there is an increasing odds of developing a de novo DSA. But even when you look at levels below 9, below 8, below 7, so we're not looking at just levels which are what we traditionally would consider subtherapeutic for the first year, like less than 4 or less than 5, but even between 8 and 9, there is an odds ratio of developing a de novo DSA. When they looked at time in the therapeutic range and they uh, divided the patients by those who were in the therapeutic range 60% of the time, and those who were in the therapeutic range less than 60% of the time, again, they found that there was an increased risk of developing de novo DSA, an increased risk of developing rejection within the first year, and an increased risk of having graft loss within the first five years for patients who did not have a tacrolimus level within 60%, at, at least 60% of the time in the therapeutic range. So I think to summarize, low tacrolimus levels in time and therapeutic range are associated with de novo DSA and associated with an increased risk of acute rejection as well as graft loss at five years. But keeping people within the therapeutic range is not easy. And I think we all know that, people who are taking care of post-transplant patients, even in their own study where they had a very highly controlled uh, patient population, unsensitized people within the first year of transplant when they had very close follow-up, over a quarter of the patients were in the range of 5 to 10 micrograms per liter less than 60% of the time. So 25% of these people were outside of the therapeutic range. So this is one of those situations where one may consider once daily dosing, and I'll talk a little bit about the once daily tacrolimus, which may improve adherence and potentially address side effects that are associated with tacrolimus and which may lead to less time in the therapeutic range. And they looked at only time in the therapeutic range, but it may be also important to look at time above the therapeutic range to look when particularly in studies when you're looking at consequences of over immunosuppression. So once a day tacrolimus has been around for a while, has not gained a lot of traction, uh, except recently with the introduction of the LCP tacrolimus. So there are two formulations that are available in the United States. There is Astagraf, uh, which is tacrolimus extended release, and LCP tacrolimus, which is uh, also known as Envarsus, which is marketed by Veloxis. The interesting thing is that although both of these are once-a-day medications, they have vastly different pharmacokinetics. And here you have the pharmacokinetics in this picture where the dotted red lines refer to prograph and astograph. And as you can see, twice a day prograph or once a day astograph have very similar pharmacokinetics in terms of having you know, the same time to reach the Cmax. The Cmax is about the same and the DK pattern looks about the same. Whereas the LCP tacrolimus has a longer Tmax. It takes a longer time to get to its peak concentration. The peak concentration is not as high as the peak concentration seen with 
astagraph or with prograph. And then the delay, the decay of the concentration has a more shallow curve as compared to that of the once daily tacrolimus astagraph or prograph. The AUC actually for LCP tacrolimus, that is Envarsus, tends to be higher. So actually when you convert them from uh, BID tacrolimus to Envarsus, you have to do a 30% reduction in the dose, give them only about 70% of what they were taking as a total dose. And some, although this has not been shown in studies and people are working on these studies, the fact that the Cmax is not as high as the astagraph or the BID tacrolimus may help to spare some of the patients from the side effects, particularly the tremors, the insomnia, the neuropsychiatric side effects, which are often seen with the high doses, you know, at the peak levels of tacrolimus. And the primary benefit which has been established in studies of once-a-day tacrolimus is enhanced adherence. So this is something I think we need to consider as an option going forward for our patients. Finally, coming to kidney pathology, I think uh, Dr. Vincenti again touched on a lot of this. But what have protocol biopsies told us? We've been doing protocol biopsies at UCSF now for about eight years or so, and there are numerous interesting studies that have shown the value of doing these uh, biopsies. The first study is from France, where they looked at early protocol biopsies. So these are biopsies which are done at one year. They had about 15,000 patients, uh, 1,500 patients with one-year protocol biopsies. And even at one year, they found that 61% of these patients had some amount of scarring interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy, which, you know, uh, could be mild, which was uh, an IFTA greater than uh, IFTA score of one, or could be moderate or severe, which was an IFTA of two or three. Among patients with IFTA, it was not simply bland IFTA, just scarring, but they also found inflammation in these scarred areas, and that was found in about 40% of patients with scarring. And what predicted the presence of inflammation in these scarred areas? When they did an analysis of all the clinical factors, they found that having rejection within the first year, BK within the first year, or having suboptimal immune suppression, so that if you were not on steroids, not on a CNI, or not on a CELCEPT, all of these were associated with increased risk of having inflammation in scarred areas, and of course, HLA mismatches. So what is the importance of this inflammation present in fibrotic areas? Typically, this is not counted as part of rejection. And however, it has been shown that inflammation in scarred areas, not only in this study, but in multiple other studies, is associated with an increased risk of graft loss. And here you see on the y-axis the hazard ratio for kidney allograft loss over eight years. And on the right side, you see the increasing IFTAS, the the scores of inflammation and tubulitis in scarred areas, the composite score. And you show see that for e increasing each point increase in the score, there's an increased risk of graft loss. The second study, I think, is a really interesting study, which came from Australia by uh, Nanke Well, and their group has published uh, studies before on their biopsies. What is in more interesting about this study is that it doesn't look at a single biopsy or a snapshot of a patient. What they did was they had kidney pancreas transplant recipients from 1987 to 2012. These patients underwent serial protocol biopsies at time zero, so that is at implantation, one, three, six, and 12 months, and then annually or every two, three years for 10 years. So they had 10 years worth of data on these patients with serial histologic monitoring as well as a wealth of clinical data. And as you can see on the left on the panel here, they show the evolution 
of how things occur in these patients. So that in the early years after the transplant, what you see is inflammation. And as time goes by, you see this inflammation in the atrophic areas. And as time further time goes by, you see the development of fibrosis, moderate to severe fibrosis, which suggests that this, this is not only an association, but is the inflammation starts off and causes scarring and then finally the inflammation dies down and what you are left with is these changes of chronic scarring, interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy. What is also interesting about their study is that because their study spanned 1987 to 2012, about 30 uh, years or so, about half of the patients, uh, several patients in their cohort up to 99 uh, were on cyclosporin, azathioprine, and prednisone, and patients after 99 were on tacrolimus, sulcept, and prednisone. So they were able to actually compare era effects. And here you see that these are people from the cyclosporin era, and these are folks from the tacrolimus era, and that the point prevalence of inflammation in areas of fibrosis is much improved in the tacrolimus era compared to the cyclosporin era. And similarly, the evolution of this inflammation and fibrosis tends to be different in the cyclosporin and in the tacrolimus groups. And here you see that people in the tacrolimus groups tends to have more resolution of the interstitial, the inflammation in the interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophic areas as time goes by. And that, you know, the conversion of IFTA to inactive fibrosis tends to happen more commonly in the tacrolimus group, which is the black squares here, compared to the white dots, which are the cyclosporin group. So clearly, even though there is inflammation and there is injury in the graft, this is not an inevitable consequence of transplant and is susceptible to modification by the immunosuppressive regimen. Finally, I think this study is the last study that I'm talking about, which Dr. Vincenti already uh, touched upon, the renal allograft histology at 10 years. Again, this is a cohort which is different from the French group and from the Nankivel group. This is a cohort of mostly living donor kidney transplant recipients, mostly white recipients from a uh, population which was pretty adherent to follow-up and was followed up in uh, the Mayo Clinic for about 10 years or so. And also, I think a striking feature of this cohort is that they were all on TAC, MMF, and prednisone. And as you know, a lot of these studies from the older eras uh, are the ones uh, you know we had before. So 81%, like I said, were maintained on TAC, MMF, and prednisone. They underwent surveillance biopsies again at baseline, four months, one, two, five, and 10 years. So what, again, the study showed, which was uh, similar to the previous study, is that there is a burden of chronic changes, the AH, which is the arterial hyaluronosis score, the MS, which is a mesangial sclerosis, GGS glomerulo-global sclerosis, and chronic interstitial fibrosis, as well as vasculopathy that go, accumulates as time goes by, from zero to 10 years. What was interesting and different about this study was they did not find a very high prevalence of CG, which is transplant glomerulopathy. And also they did not find a very high incidence of de novo DSA, even at 10 years in their population. So even though 82% of grafts had at least one major lesion, one major lesion of chronicity, either the AH, the glomerulosclerosis, or the mesangial sclerosis, they did not necessarily seem to be immune-mediated in this low immunologic uh, low immunologic risk cohort of patients who were maintained on effective immunosuppression with good follow-up. So this, I think this shows really that the GFR and the proteinuria, you know, got worse as the severity of the histologic lesion got worse. 
And another thing that they found was in 30% of these biopsies, they could actually assign a diagnosis. Most of the times what we see in these 10-year biopsies is just a, you know, sort of a mishmash of things. You see scleral interstitial fibrosis, you may see a little bit of transplant glomerulopathy, you also see some diabetic change. But in some of these biopsies, you could be you could actually give them a major diagnosis. And surprisingly enough, Transplant glomerulopathy was only the diagnosis in 16 of these cases, out of these 60 cases, and the remaining consisted of things like diabetic nephropathy, IgA nephropathy, FSGS, and so on. So I think, again, points to the fact that although chronic injury is common and chronic immune injury is also common, I think one has to look at the patient, the cohort, their immunosuppressive regimen to decide what kind of chronic injury this patient is more likely to have and then decide what would be the most effective strategy to deal with this problem. So to summarize, I think we already talked about this, but the lessons learned, I think, I think what this reminded me is, uh, you know, Henry IV from Shakespeare, that the purpose we undertake is dangerous, the friends that we have are uncertain. Time itself is unsorted, and the whole plot is too light for the counterpoise of so great an opposition. But we have new medications in our armament. We have new strategies to identify patients at risk. We have precision medicine of Mini Sarwal and Jun Shoji. And we have, I think, more and more knowledge that is accumulated from all the biopsies that we do, all the data that we gather on all our patients. So I think eventually out of this nettle danger, we will pluck this flower safety. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.